0: Somewhat maybe a more negative conversation than what we've been having, but I think it's a realistic conversation that needs to be had today talking about what types of assets should you be buying. I think if you'd asked the three of us this question 12, 15, 18 months ago, we'd have a very different conversation than we might today, but I think this is going to be a really good setup for a longer term career and how you might want to look at your real estate investing. Today, I am joined by Dave Codre over at Greenleaf and Brian Adams at Excelsior Capital. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. We're going to be talking about what types of assets should you buy. So I think first, let's dive into what you started off buying and how you landed in that. And Dave, I'm going to kick it over to you to kind of get us started there.
1: I mean, go all the way back, started buying single family rentals because it's all I could afford. That's where I, you know. I had a little bit, I had some money, I could buy a single family rental, but as you know, growing with it, trying to find what, what asset class or what investment can really like has some room for growth, like where can I go with stuff? And, you know, eventually got into multifamily simply because of that, but that's gone into all different asset classes. Now government leases, you know, had a, had a really good position with debt, you know, three years ago. They were great. We're looking at a lot of office right now that we can buy and convert to uh, flex. That's really, you know, right now runway wise, we're seeing buy as much single story office converted to flex as we can. That's where we see momentum going.
0: Yeah, I, I'm excited to dive into that and tear that apart because you've had the the more typical real estate entrance into investing, but now you've really branched it off into some some different ways. Brian, what about you? Yeah, so we started in urban infill development in Nashville,
2: uh, just because we didn't know where else to go, or what else to do, and those are the deals that we could afford. You know, we were buying; these were, you know, we were taking full recourse loans on buying deep value add opportunistic in our backyard. Again, this is 2010, 2011, so a very different world, and it was, it was great when when it was rolling. Obviously, we've progressed. You know, substantially since then, but that was the product type that we first. Again, this is kind of weird because we were raising a fund. It was like a really tiny fund, buying these, you know, pretty risky deals. In retrospect, but that's how we that's how we started. And I think just, you know, as we've talked about, it was a function of what we could afford and who would take us seriously. Not, not many brokers would return our
0: calls and. So that was just kind of the product that we could afford and that we could actually get under control. Yeah. I mean, that's the nice thing about starting off on the residential side, right? You can at least build a track record of successful deals. You have people take you a little more seriously because, you know, I mean, if you're if you're a guy that's, that nobody knows and you want to buy a $5 million asset, they're probably going to take the guys more seriously that have bought $5 million assets before. Whereas a house, I mean, pretty much anybody or, or you know, smaller development, kind of anybody can kind of come up and do that. I mean, I, I have my start in an, in a similar way, I guess, on the residential development side. I, I started off at a, at a development firm, though, and so I kind of cheated and was able to put together a 42 unit development on my first deal. Could not have done it if I wasn't working for a development firm. Um, but I got to kind of watch that, and then you know, my like progression. I, I started buying office buildings back in 2019, and then we branched out into retail and and a lot of mixed use and development from there. So. Dave, let's, let's get into your transition. Why did you like, when, when was the uh, market starting to shift for you and multifamily to where you said, you know what, we got to start looking at other asset classes. And why did you pick what you did?
1: Yeah. So the last multifamily deals we bought were 2019. And that was really the end of the point where the math that you know we use in our models still worked. So at that point we it was either hey we're just not going to buy any deals anymore or are we got to go find a different area to play in. And we kind of saw that coming. So 2017 we started buying uh some just different commercial assets that were more on the net lease side where we didn't have as much work to do. Before you really get into heavy, you know, operating on the on the commercial side, but outside of 2019 it was like okay, what other asset classes can we buy that have a cheap basis? are in our backyard and, and we can do something with them. So it comes down to it, myself and my firm, like we're pretty much a basis investor. We wanna find the cheapest thing we can, you know, we wanna buy the cheapest thing we can buy. Like we're, we're not typically buying high dollar uh, per square foot assets. And uh, that took us into a lot of just different warehouse flex type of assets that were cheaper on a per square foot basis. and. uh and we saw a good amount of rent growth that was there. So that's just trying to find what market has upward momentum and has more demand than supply at that time.
0: And how did you how did you dive into that data and figure out what those assets might be? Was it was it based on vacancy rates? Was it based on rental growth? I mean, what were you tracking?
1: Vacancy rates. You know, it started with that of saying, like, hey, where, where does this market look? And then also, I mean, I'm a big fan of just drive around kind of driving around in circles and looking at the market you're operating in, you know, a lot of the assets we buy are, it's not infill, right? It's not like downtown Atlanta or, or a big city, but it's a little more suburban, but the areas are all built up. I mean, you can go to a lot of suburban markets and they are fully built out. There's not any free space, even though it's still suburban. Yeah. So we're looking at assets like, yeah, that's true. You know, it goes pretty far out in the suburbs where it's very developed. So you could look at assets like you can't go build a, you know, 400,000 square foot warehouse building in a lot of these places in Atlanta Cause it's, there's already stuff there. There's no land that's available for that. So we're looking at, you know, stuff we can buy that just can't really be replaced, easily replaced.
0: Yeah, I love that strategy. Right, go out there and find something below replacement costs where you can renovate it and still be below replacement costs, because then you can come in at a cheaper rent with a comparable product to new construction. Now, I say comparable, meaning like it's not going to be the exact same thing, obviously, but you're going to be able to compete with it on a on a tenancy basis. Brian, what about you, man? I mean, how you you started off with urban infill? Where did you branch out into?
2: Yeah, we got into multi tenant suburban office. Um. Really, it was a function of, at the time, again, this is kind of that 2011, 2012 timeframe. Multifamily, even then, was super competitive with bigger funds, with really good like vertically integrated firms, with a cheaper cost of capital. And a lot of the LPs we talked to who were in our network already had access to great multifamily sponsor and fund managers. And so we thought, well, let's give them a different product type that otherwise they wouldn't get exposure to. And at the time, you know, similar investment thesis, we could buy these at a low basis, discount to replacement cost, put on, you know, good attractive debt and produce a double digit yield. Um, you know, Luckily, we were able to exit those assets with a recap in 2018, 2019. Uh, we still have some office in the portfolio. We can get in that if you want, but that was the direction we went into again because it was really a function of what can we do to give people yield that's a different flavor of ice cream that they already didn't have exposure to and so we ended up in office
0: yeah let's let's talk about office now because it's it sounds like y'all both have a fair amount of experience on that side and, and that's where i cut my teeth too i mean you know if you read the headlines office has gotten absolutely rocked since 2020 i personally believe that that's not the case. And I think you've got to really dive into a building by building basis to look at it. But I mean, Brian, what are your thoughts on office investing today? Who scary, <laughs> yeah.
2: scary, scary, scary. So, uh, w- w- what I would say is, um, you know, the wall street journal, the last two days, there were big articles about how San Francisco and Atlanta are just getting crushed in their office markets. You know, if you look at the REIT market as a proxy for office overall within gateway markets, it's still very subdued. Um, okay, so here's the deal: if you have a long enough time horizon and you can manage the carrying costs, I think office is a great place to deploy capital today, especially if you're a cash buyer or you have some attractive repurposing or, or re, you know, configuring play there. But just buying it on like a cash flow cap rate basis, I think it's a value trap if you're buying like core, core plus stabilized product. Because no matter what per square foot or cap rate you're buying it at, once you impute kind of tenant improvement dollars, leasing commissions, deferred maintenance, CapEx, and what your debt is going to cost, if you can even get a loan, you're probably going to have to go to a private credit market to get that, which is going to be 13, 15%. You put your capital stack together. You better really drive NOI, or you better have a long, long time horizon because it's going to be challenging to actually create
0: money long term. I think buying in today's market. Yeah. Do you think that work from home is is really driving that? I mean, do you think that that is a something that's that's seeped into even small businesses now? Because you know when it, when when the office uh, market really started tanking, it was a lot of corporations. Right? They kind of had this middle management that was set up to where they could already manage people remotely. And it seems like your smaller office product, like the building I'm in, 28,000 square feet, 13 to 15 tenants, uh, was doing fine. Now, I think that office is still okay, even, even on my front, the small business front with smaller tenants. But it seems like with AI and some of the technology that's coming out that's starting to really cater towards these small businesses could change that in the future.
2: And I want to make sure we're differentiating here. There's a difference between flex product, which right. you know, Tyler, I've been to your office, like that's a good, uh, you know, a good example of a flex product where the typical user profile is probably under three thousand square feet, and some of its traditional office, but some of its storage or warehouse or a podcast recording studio or something where it's not traditional office layout, right? That product I think is going to be in, in a really good shape and do very well, but traditional office. So we're talking tower suburban deals with 20,000 square foot floor plates. I think it's in for a reckoning. Um, it's going to be super challenging for a constellation of reasons. One of which is, as you pointed out, the way we work has changed. Um, We're not in the office five days a week. I'm working from home today. It's a Monday. My whole team is distributed on Mondays and Fridays. We're just not in the office as much as we are. I don't think we will be. The other issue long-term is just demographically. If you look at the workforce, I was reading today by 2028, the average or the oldest baby boomers will be 64. And that's the traditional age of retirement, right? So that's the largest working cohort ever. Millennials are second behind that. We just aren't producing as many workers as we used to. Meanwhile, in a zero interest rate environment the last 20 years, 15 years, developers have been developing. And so there's a lot of new product and spec product coming on the marketplace. It's very hard to compete. And so what you end up having having is these users are giving back space. The sublease market, the shadow market is really, really big. You don't need as much space. You've got technology improvements and culture changes that are diminishing how much square footage we need moving forward. And what happens is it becomes a tenants market for commoditized space. And so it's a musical chairs in a lot of these markets where real rates, if you go to a market like Kansas city or Memphis, kind of a secondary suburban office market, Real rental rates in office have probably plateaued at 25 bucks a square foot modified gross, and they've probably been that way for 25 years. And they, there's no catalyst to have them really move, right? And so that's a
0: problem. Chattanooga is a great example of that, because when we first started looking at office buildings in Chattanooga, we were like, man, these rental rates haven't changed. Like, you, you were looking at the CoStar data, like, these haven't changed in like five or 10 years. I mean, it's it's the same. So, it's, it's yeah, tough so, to overwrite those deals. You know, even in a market like Nashville, and then I'll pass the
2: mic. I mean, Nashville is one of the most robust, dynamic commercial real estate markets in the world. And we have brand new class AA, AAA, whatever brokerage BS term you want to throw on it. <laughs> like, beautiful new buildings with all of the funky, crazy amenities that you want in killer locations. And we've busted through that psychic barrier where you know we're getting 40 50 bucks a square foot whatever if you talk to leasing brokers in the office space locally our downtown office generally like as a holistic um profile of product in Q4 Q1 we're going to be about 50% occupied across class C B A etc so that's just not good and if you're in a worse market it's a bit of a death spiral and that's what you're seeing take place in San Francisco and some
0: of these other markets. Dave, what are are your thoughts on office? I know you guys, y'all have some office space and and you're also getting really creative in what you're doing with office acquisition. So want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, we, we've got a good amount of it, but we're also, we are signing a good number of leases in the office space, but even within that, it's, it's not the downtown tower type stuff. We're signing a, mostly medical leases for buildings that we have. So it's more medical geared leases. And I mean, the medical industry as a whole, or you want to call that like a little sub segment has performed well and it's continuing to grow and the expansion of uh, a lot of that's private equity fueled as they're coming in and and aggregating practices, that kind of stuff. So that's done well. We're not really signing multi-story. We don't really have any either big multi-story, uh, Office leases. But my personal viewpoint too is I, I don't think people want to commute as much. If you've got a building that's easy to get to, I think people are okay coming to the office a couple of times or getting another house or mixing things up, doing some in person meetings. I just don't think they want to drive an hour and a half to do that. Now, I, I personally live in the suburbs and driving all the way downtown for Atlanta, you know, in the main business district. That's a challenge. I don't personally want to do that. And and I imagine a lot of people also just don't want to do that commute, but I don't mind going to the office and having a couple meetings and doing stuff. I, I think that's fine. So that's, uh, that part of the segment will work. But with that in mind, there's a lot of just contraction in the overall office market as a whole. And if you're going to pick that as something to invest in, you better, I'm sure some people are going to do very well doing it. They're going to know what the heck they're doing. They're going to be Exceptionally well capitalized, they're gonna they're gonna have a plan that's better than your plan, and they're gonna win at doing it. I don't know how I don't know what that plan is, so but yeah, I'm, I'm sure someone's some, gonna make some money doing it.
2: Yeah, I, I'm on some YPO real estate WhatsApp groups where guys are buying office at like 14, 15 caps, right, cash. Which yeah, at, um, there's there's going to be a price discovery process that takes place here, but. I don't want to get too technical, but so much of that office product is financed through CMBS. Yeah. And the conduit market is going to take three to five years to clear out right. Stuff that was, the keys were given back on deals in 2020. Blackstone gave back the keys on a big office deal in Manhattan. That loan is just coming to the market now. So there's a huge lag that occurs that it's just going to take a while to shake out.
1: Yeah, this cycle on the office in the in the bigger commercial deals is way longer than Yeah. I mean we were doing residential at all.
2: We were doing ten year interest only deals not too long ago. And so you could probably service that debt for a while, right? But
0: at some point when it rolls, bondholders are gonna come. Well, and I would imagine that lenders too are not gonna be nearly as comfortable with it no matter what the cap rate is. So it's gonna be tougher to get debt you're definitely going to be signing personal guarantees. Um, and then they're probably going to make a joint and several, too, which is going to make a lot of partners uncomfortable getting into these deals and taking that risk despite the cash flow. I mean, it's it's like Memphis, right? You can go out to Memphis and buy, you know, single-family homes or apartment complexes at 15 to 20% cap rates, but there's a reason that those are still available and they're not getting scooped up left and right. You know, there's still a massive amount of risk yeah. that comes with that. And often often not worth it well we have uh we've beat the dead horse on office <laughs> um what how's everybody feel about multifamily right now dave i'll, I'll kick this over to you because i know you're you're doing yeah. multi or you have done historically more multifamily. family oh no did we lose dave i think we lost dave all right well dave we'll I, kick it can... back to you if he comes back in brian do you have any thoughts on yeah multifamily? I, uh, I could step in so
2: just to be clear. I am not a multifamily person. We've never done a multifamily deal. I I only know enough to be dangerous, but again, I think the best way I've, I've heard this put by people is, you know, given where cap rates are, they've been pretty sticky and given where rent growth is, I'm just not sure it makes a ton of sense to take a deal down today where your upside is a 50 BIP compression after your value add work. And even that might be pretty suspect with your underwriting. So unless you're taking, you know, pretty aggressive fees, you're vertically integrated, or you have some other investment thesis or business plan where it makes sense, buying that stuff on a stabilized basis for a 50 bit increase, like you're probably not even gonna hit your carry unless you have some really aggressive waterfall structure. So from a, from a sponsor perspective, I think it's, it's really hard these days to make those kind of core core plus deals make any sense from a, from a GP sponsor perspective, at least.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like so much value add has been done over the last 10 years. There's nothing else left to value add. And so I don't know how you squeeze blood from a turnip on that one, but it seems like people are still trying to do it. I mean, you, you get the, you know, we're at, we're at the point in the market where the, the incredible risk takers that think they know everything because they've you know been in in stocks or hedge funds or private equity for years you know they're able to raise a whole bunch of money and and you know go buy a whole bunch of apartments and, and we all saw what happened with the with nightingale right out of houston I mean, the guy lost what 3200 units uh because his interest rate went from four percent to eight percent in six months and he bought it on a uh floating rate you just can't can't do that i mean dave what are you seeing in, in, in the multifamily family world you think it's worth buying today
1: I just, there's so much competition, right? You know, ultimately people are looking to make allocations into real estate. And if you're taking out office and that's not a viable source anymore, I mean, office pricing is is typically way higher than than multifamily. So you've got all those funds now looking for a new home and multifamily has been the, uh, you know, the star child of that situation over the past few years here. So just very competitive and, hard to find numbers that pencil out uh, in that space. But a lot of it was bought on floating rate loans and they don't, the floating rate loans from multifamily do not take as long to to kind of work through the system as they do on the commercial side. So there might be some opportunities coming up through that uh, you know, possibly prior to uh, the commercial stuff. Like Brian was saying, you could service 10 years interest only for a long time. Multifamily might have been a three year interest only, you know, bank loan
2: yeah the other kind of big picture demographic play i think multifamily does make a lot of sense with mortgage rates north of seven percent you know the affordability factor is a real problem for the majority of america today and i think there should be a conversation in washington whether from a policy perspective we want to continue to try to push home ownership as part of the kind of american dream you know historically we've been a renting nation in modern history, you know, maybe we should go back to being a renting nation for the vast majority of America. So from that perspective, you know, I think it does make sense to get into a multifamily. Um, a lot of these people are not going to ever be able to afford a home and there's just not enough product or inventory in the market to service it. Even when rates go back down to say five or 6%, which is probably an historical average, I'm still not really sure it makes a lot of sense for people. So from that perspective. If you have a long enough time horizon, I think multifamily, you know, makes a lot of sense. But again, in today's market, it's just hard. I, you know, you keep hearing horror stories about NOI going down, rent growth has stalled out, and it seems like all of this free money and and incentives that were given to people to, you know, be catalytic to that investment, no longer applies.
0: Yeah, I mean, and yeah. I'll caveat. Go ahead, Dave.
1: So, yeah, I'm looking at the uh, Fed website on mortgage rates, and the last time they were 8% was 2,000. So it's like a whole generation of home potential home buyers or first-time homebuyers that have never seen rates at 8%. And it's like, whoa, they're like they're not going to buy anything at 8%. It's completely yeah. out of the norm for what they've seen over 20
0: years. What well, it completely changes how much you can afford, right? I mean, j- just a 1% change on your mortgage rate, I mean, to to us, we're like, yeah, that's not that big of a difference. But when you have a fixed income and you're trying to buy a house and your mortgage goes up 100 bucks a month, I mean, that changes things,
2: right? Dude, a- average American does not have access to $1,000 of cash. That's crazy. The average American does not have access to $1,000 of cash. So you talk about 25 BIPs, and that's meaningful to them in terms of paying the rent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that too, you know, any kind of new construction or pricing on on a single-family home, like, they're expensive. There's no, like, hey, where's the $150,000 starter home? I don't think anywhere. (laughs) doesn't exist. That's nowhere that I know of.
2: Yeah, and we're not—I mean, this is, like, tiptoeing in the political realm, but— Just demographically, Americans are not having enough children domestically, so there's going to be a lot of housing stock that just is obsolete, I think, in the next 10 or 20 years. So, you know, big picture, like just as an investor, you need to be paying attention to what's happening in Washington and with the election cycle coming up about how people are thinking about
0: immigration policy, because it will impact real estate investing. Yeah. I mean, we really started seeing that in the last five to 10 years, right? I mean, the three bedroom apartment was the least desirable rental asset out there, right? So everybody started switching their three bedrooms into, you know, either co-living or, or eliminating them completely from new construction because they just wouldn't lease. Um, and I I know that there's some other factors that have to do with that, right? Home Buying homes was cheaper, but also you can rent homes now. There's a lot of rental homes out there now that that didn't used to be in the market, so that that will compete with multifamily at some point. Uh, one thing I was going to say earlier that I think is is important to keep in mind during this whole conversation is, you know, we're we're talking about buying assets with leverage, right? Because we're all chasing yield. You know, if you're if you're in a ten thirty one exchange or you're paying cash for some of these assets, I think that your trajectory is a little bit different than what we're talking about here. You know, kind of like with. The guys were alluding to earlier if you're paying cash for something you've got a really long time horizon you're probably going to do fine um but when you're when we're talking about floating rate debt interest rates being high construction rates you know being as high as they are i mean construction's unreal um it kind of changes the way that you look at the formula let's let's talk about industrial uh brian i know you've gotten really big into industrial here recently what are your thoughts on on investing in industrial today
2: it's still pretty competitive. Um, People are still allocating a lot of capital, much like multifamily. Um, And I wanna be precise here. So the product type that we're familiar with is kind of existing class B flex industrial, right? So I'm not talking about the new out of the box, million square feet, class A distribution facility that Amazon is servicing. Like That's not our world. I think that world is actually imploded um, because Amazon walked from a bunch of those deals and there was a lot of spec development and there was a lot of hot money chasing that. And, you know, there was just really an arbitrage capture between construction and what you could buy in a, or what you could sell on a stable basis. I think some people have been really hurt in that world, but long-term you talk about, I mean, just think about your daily behavior in terms of like how often you go to the grocery store or how often you use Amazon or I work from home Mondays and Fridays and it's like Grand Central Station in my house in terms of all (laughs) the third party vendors and service providers and product that's being picked up and taken to my home. And now granted, we I've got a family and my wife orders a lot and I'm affluent, but still like the world is changing pretty dramatically. And I think retail While there's a place for experiential in-place retail, and I'm a believer in that, I just don't think people want to go out and buy stuff anymore like they used to. And so from a last mile fulfillment kind of distribution standpoint, I'm a total believer. And then taking a step back, I've had a lot of folks on my podcast recently talk about how like the rear, the reshoring and the near shoring of manufacturing and supply chain, because the world is going to hell in a handbasket regardless of who's in the White House, is going to continue. We are no longer going to open ourselves up to geopolitical risk of having supply chain and manufacturing based in Southeast Asia or South America because those places are imploding, and we cannot rely on them, and it's not safe for us as America. And that will have a push-through effect into the commercial real estate sector. I'm a big believer in that.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I've been talking with my buddies here recently about, you know, what would it look like if we just started buying manufacturing companies, right? I know that that's a total like left field thing for somebody who's been investing in syndicating commercial real estate. But, you know, we're looking at, you know, you've got all these boomers, like you were saying earlier, the youngest will be 64 in a few years. And a lot of them own manufacturing companies. And so They've got to go somewhere. They're gonna be selling them. A lot of other people are probably not gonna be looking necessarily at buying manufacturing companies and and I completely agree with you. I think it's coming back to the mainland.
2: Well, and Inflation Reduction Act, which is a complete misnomer and very misleading, but you know, what I'm seeing and hearing is companies and entrepreneurs and a lot of capital are chasing those tax incentives in the green energy world. And and that will also have a flow through to industrial manufacturing. And so there's going to be a huge amount of capital rushing into that space, whether or not that make any sense from a deal perspective, I have no idea. But it's like solar panels 20 years ago or whatever tax incentive regime that the White House throws up every 10 years. Like this is what this is right now. There's a lot of capital chasing that.
0: Yeah, manufacturing is going to be the new vape shop. We're going to have them popping up on every damn (laughs) corner. Dave, Dave, what are your thoughts on on industrial real estate? I know you're
1: doing some flex. No vape shops, but you know, some flex. Yeah. Our our stuff is similar to what Brian's talking about. Like none of the brand new fancy forty foot, fifty foot clear heights. It's all the class B, class C kind of existing lower I mean, ours is truly lower end flex that's meant to be affordable for a business that's coming in there. And we're seeing a good amount of demand, but for that, you know, before we were talking, Tyler, we, we leased a flex space. We had about twenty-two thousand square feet. Uh we had someone in there that didn't work out. We got them out. It only took us about twenty days to lease the space. So uh, you know, and that's a big a big piece. One of the office conversions we're doing right now, we've got sixty thousand square feet of vacant office that we'll take apart and, and carve up into into flex suites, so we're going to have an office or two and a conference room up front, and roll up doors in a big warehouse in the back, and you divide that into call it a five, ten thousand square foot, little piece, and those rent pretty quick. There's a lot of demand for that right now. I,
0: I want to know more about that strategy because I mean there there's some bigger office parts that you know are starting to come available for sale here in Nashville, so talk to me about the numbers like what are you able to pay on a price per square foot basis and what are your what are your typical renovation costs i mean i would imagine the nice thing is like you're basically just ripping the ceilings out leaving a lot of the the hvac in right you've already got heated and cooled warehouse space um and then adding some some roll-up doors
1: yeah and you know one of the deals we're we're doing the roll-up doors are still there and you know a lot of the single story suburban assets have been converted and used for different stuff over the years. Uh but we're, we're normally only at like a 14 to 16 foot clear height on the ceiling. So that's fairly low for for a flex asset. But we're an industrial, you know, an industrial asset's gonna be much higher than that. So this is this is purely flex. This is not like the the super high ceilings. But yeah, it's it's a cost us about 10 bucks a square foot to fully demo everything out. And you know, one of the ones we have now we have, uh, we've got some, what looks to be brand new, very nice office furniture. So if you need like a hundred cubicles, I can send them your way. <laughs> Call Dave. <laughs> <laughs> they're worth, I think they're worth nothing right now, you know, so we're just throwing all that stuff out. There's not really anything we can do with it. But that'll cost us about 10 bucks a square foot to, to just clear out old office carpets, floors, old drop ceilings. Kind Of everything you imagine you don't want, and yeah. then we've got an open space. Um, and our, our basis, you know, we can buy stuff, it's all under a uh, you know, under 90 a square foot that we can get into this. So, we've, we've got yeah. deals on a contract now, they're between uh, you know, the 55 a square foot to 85 a square foot, very dependent on location and access. That stuff, you can't just do it for every building, you got to find how does this work for the asset that's there,
0: yeah.
2: yeah I mean. I think just to like tie up this product conversation, whatever it is you're looking at, it, RV deal, RV parks, industrial flex, bill to rent, whatever. In today's interest rate environment, you need to be able to demonstrate compression, like legitimate cap rate compression, or driving NOI. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, the value proposition compared to holding cash or investing into a T bill.
1: Or private credit, hard right now. Yeah. I mean it's hard. And it's gotta be fast. That that cap rate compression or that increasing NOI or whatever you're gonna do in your investment, a couple of years ago you had a lot of time to do that. Now you gotta make that happen quick. You can't have something that just sits there for 18 months with no progress.
0: Yeah, because your investors are expecting you to turn it around quickly enough so that they don't get incentivized to go buy t-bills instead right i mean yeah yeah tough market out there right now um what about hospitality i'm gonna loop in i mean obviously restaurants and hotels fall under hospitality but i want to clarify that because i know you know restaurants are are a bit of a different beast uh are y'all interested in that at all and brian Mm -hmm. i'm gonna kick it over to you first i mean are you looking at hotels or restaurants
2: negative um i've had some scar tissue there um from a family perspective, my wife's family, we invested into restaurants pre 08. We got murdered. Again, this is more on the operating company side, not the dirt, although the op the the opco did own some some real assets. Um and then I actually had to pay out on a partial PG for a restaurant deal that blew up during COVID. Oh wow. So I'm out on restaurants. Um just I had too much fun and I'm gonna get out of the punch bowl on that one. Um <laughs> And then hotels, you know, my, my business partner is Indian and his family participates in a lot of hotel deals. And, um, that is once you get into like the unflagged partial service world, you better really know what you're doing because that's super inside baseball, even for real estate. And so I think there is real opportunity there, but man, I would be careful. And, um, it seems like the travel industry, you know, it's interesting. You've seen some hotels be given back to the lender and we were talking about how people just aren't going into the office as much anymore. I'm traveling a fair amount now. And it's interesting because I don't even really bother reaching out to people any longer when I travel to New York because like everyone's in Connecticut or Jersey or Long Island, but they are going to the conferences. And they are aggregating in these hotels and so business travel seems as busy as ever and i assume those hotels are doing really well it's not really my world um but i would just be i would be
0: careful there that's what i would say what about short-term rentals would you would you invest in those at all not not just in nashville but kind of abroad from a regulatory perspective, it seems like some of these jurisdictions are cracking down hard, right? And
2: and if New York is going to be the vanguard of how these jurisdictions start recouping tax basis by eliminating Airbnb and short term rentals, I would be very cautious. I don't like any investment regime where the regulatory oversight is that um you know, it, it can be so schizophrenic that one day they could just say, Hey, you no longer qualify for this or Oh, by the way, you need to actually live in this building or this unit before you can rent it. I mean, I just I think we've all seen how inept government is. And once they start having a bigger role in your investments, I'd walk.
0: Personally. Yeah, that's what's always scared me yeah. off from doing short term rentals because I I mean, you know, we, we managed a whole bunch of them uh, back before the pandemic hit. We dropped that business completely because obviously it went to zero. Uh, it came roaring back, but it's, it seems like every other week in Nashville, you know, a different council member is proposing a different, you know, crazy regulation. Some of them good, but most of them not in favor. And it's, it's tough for me to see that as an investable asset when tomorrow they could just say, nope, no permits anymore. Uh, can't transfer these. It's over. Um, So Dave, Dave, what about you? What about hotels, short-term rentals, and
1: restaurants? Short-term rentals is interesting. They when Airbnb started, it was like a very small percentage of like the travel industry. And it was kind of like, hey, this is pretty cool, and that's fine. But as that percentage of market share has increased, they've essentially like the hotels are on notice and they're those are big, exceptionally well run organizations. And now they're you've got Airbnb trying to be a direct competitor against Hilton, Marriott, it, you know, that's a battle. I mean, if you want to get into a battle and start doing it like there you can pick one with those guys, but I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of trying to to fight something like that with a business. So I think they got a lot of headwind just from that. Just from that alone and people are shutting down if yeah, like just like New York is doing, California's got big restrictions on what can and can't be done. And I think there's just more of that to come across that industry as a whole. So so we don't do anything short term rentals. Hotels are Brian, you mentioned it's a little I mean, it's definitely inside baseball on some of those on some of the hotel deals. And those operators are close knit for such a large market, it's very close knit nationally of of what's there. So yeah, we don't care that space.
2: Yeah. For the, for the, you know, the select service, um, if you're not on the right WhatsApp group channel, I think you're toast. But that's legit how those deals get done. So, yeah. No, thanks.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like you, Brian. One of my partners is a Patel. And, man, he, the, the deals get traded between them. Like, they never hit the market. It's a, it's such a different. It's kind of like multifamily. How like different multifamily the process is for buying and selling deals compared to office, yeah. retail, industrial. I mean, hotels has its completely own separate way of doing things.
1: It's really interesting. All right, we've yeah. got two more. We're, go ahead, go ahead, Dave. Well, we like, Ty, We're we're doing restaurant deals on on some front. We're, I mean, we're not, we don't own the yeah. restaurant or anything. We're we're just buying the buying the dirt for them, and uh, they've done pretty well in in some cases, where you know we get pretty clear rent to sales ratio, so we get a little bit of their financial reporting, and they seem to be at least the markets that we're in, predominantly Atlanta going up towards uh, Charlotte. They've performed pretty well. Like their revenue numbers look good. Obviously, they got uh, wage growth that they're working with and supply growth that you know there's there's stuff facing, them, but they seem to be doing pretty well. And we've got a got a good number of mostly franchise restaurants uh, that we own with strong operators and they're performing They're performing well.
0: Are you buying So we'll, we look leases? at those deals, we like them. Are you buying ground what? leases or are you buying the actual buildings, like single tenant net lease
1: structures? Yeah, actual building, single tenant net lease. With an, we're only really buying them though, if we know the operator. It's not yeah. just like, hey, we we'll are just go pick a restaurant. It's like, if we have a good relationship with an operator, we know what they do and that's their focus. We're willing to get behind them not so much a specific, you know, type or brand It's really like, Hey, how's this operator perform? What's their track record? And when you look at that, we're going to a deal with them, essentially.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. and the, those QSR, single tenant, triple net deals, I think do make a lot of sense. And that's where technology can, it can manage the demographic problem from an employment perspective, right? Because you can go to a lot of technical technological solutions that will avoid human to human contact. There are some real, yeah. you know, employment challenges there. But I think tech solutions in terms of like ordering ahead of time, pushing people to an app, delivery services, I think those deals still make a
1: lot of sense. Um, yeah, the delivery service business has been phenomenal for a lot of, you know, a lot of the restaurants that are able to take advantage of it, implement that technology into their business. Sometimes they can't do that and and then they're at a strategic disadvantage but the ones that are able to do that especially the larger franchises that have the balance sheet and can invest in this type of stuff it's helping their business yeah and they're getting better pricing on that mobile apps than they are in store so better
0: yeah i mean it seems like you know i mean obviously they take a hit with the the delivery service taking a portion of of what the restaurant Mm -hmm. gets paid but I mean, if you look at your marketing cost to drive a customer into your space, and then you look at the cost of having vacant space in your store, I mean, I would imagine it's got to about even out. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, cool. Well, we've got uh, we've got two more that we're going to cover, one that obviously everyone is going to expect, and one that's a bit of a surprise. We're going to be diving into retail next. If you have any questions and you're joining us live, feel free to jump in the live chat. Let us know. We'll talk about those too. So, Retail uh retail is where i really you know have cut my teeth well i guess not cut my teeth but where i've really been focused for the past three years i think it's a very interesting market still today even though 10 years ago everybody said it was dead so dave what are your thoughts on retail you guys doing any retail deals
1: uh i don't think it's dead right i i don't think that death ever happened and it seems to be doing very well you know in I liken it a lot to, I'm a big fan of investing in the local areas where you're at. So my comprehension or understanding of retail is based on the areas that I live in. And there's a lot of the mixed use kind of townhome, retail restaurant, bar areas all throughout Atlanta that are performing well in the sense that there's a lot of people there, there's good foot traffic and the stores are open. So I don't know. I don't have any insight into their operating margin. We've bought some smaller retail strip center stuff and it's performed well from the standpoint that it stays occupied. They're paying the rents and they're performing. And it seems like, at least in the areas that I live, uh, North Atlanta, they're building more of these smaller strip places where you have uh, sometimes restaurants, but also small retail stores going in. They're building one right across the street from my office right now.
0: It's it's tough for Amazon to compete with that, right? It's like the everyday needs or weekly needs that people just want to stop in and get on their way home. I, I love neighborhood retail. I think it'll always do well. Brian, what about you? Yeah, we don't have a lot of like straight up retail, but we do have
2: what I'm seeing as kind of healthcare retail services, right? So some medical office or some flex office that has a dialysis clinic in it, maybe, or um a LASIK center or a podiatrist, etc. I think that's kind of become retail, right? And when you think about, you know, if you ever are wondering like where you should invest or how to invest and you're getting new to this, start tracking on GPS where you spend most of your day when you're in town. And it's a pretty consistent 15 to 20 minute loop around your house where you get your groceries, where you get your services done, where your kids go to school, where, you know, whatever social activities you're engaged with. And you'd be surprised how much time you actually spend going to places and doing things. Um, and so I, I'm a I'm a believer um, in retail. I think especially kind of the urban infill, smaller strip stuff. You know, I do worry. I mean, the malls and all that, obviously, are just getting absolutely torched. I think that oh, business yeah. is very, very difficult and a very different business. But yeah, I, I believe the retail story and remember... If you look at how much of our of our economy is consumer oriented, I mean we are a consuming economy. Like the whole thing works because we all spend money on stuff, and so you know I
0: I think healthcare and retail, pretty good bets. Yeah, and there's just some things that I don't think, or at least that I personally don't want to buy on Amazon shoes. I'm usually 50-50. I might buy some shoes on Amazon, but I like to look at them, feel them, try them on, make sure my size fits. You know, I know that it's so easy to return things to Amazon, but I'm not going to go through those steps, so I'd rather just buy it right the first time. Uh, And there's there's other things like that that I think will always do well. Um, I, I like retail. I would say it's still high on my list, especially if you've got some sort of restaurant or bar component in the retail, and there's a story behind... Uh, story behind it, right? Like the wash has done incredibly well. Uh, it's a project that we did here in East Nashville. It's in a walkable neighborhood, high visibility at a lighted intersection, uh, street parking, right? We've got a bunch of smaller tenants there, and it's it's it stays full, right? We had we we didn't renew two tenants um, at this past year, and I had two leases signed before they were vacated. Um, I mean, just because we have a wait list on that that property, which makes it really good. All right, now for the more unique one, this is something that we started talking about before we went live. Um, Considering our uh, current uh, thoughts on the market, I told everybody, you know, I'm looking at doing a house flip, getting back into single family. You know, I I I went some hard money on a deal, the deal went wrong, and it looks like I'm taking a house back. And you know, running the numbers on it, I'm like, man, I think I feel like the risk is a little bit lower in the single family world. I think that my profit margins will be pretty good. I'm not going to have to deal with investors today, right? Investors two years ago, very different story. But investors today, it's it's really tough. Debt today is tough, so might start doing more single-family residential deals, and you know that could be a mix of house flips or ground-up developments. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in that in that realm. Dave, what what about you? Have you ever have you looked at single-family residential at all?
1: We've done some in the past. I did some, as I mentioned. In the very beginning of my uh, my real estate journey, I would say, I think looking at those, though, it's it's also how are you going to get them done, and are the contractors there to support a lot of this happening? That's been, I, I think, really in any asset class, the getting the work to be able to be done has still been a little bit of a challenge. So if you can get if you can get the good subs and the good contractors in to to do one of the houses and, and the numbers match up, right? If the math works. And it's in the area you like to invest. I'm a fan as long as the math works.
0: Yep.
1: Ryan, what about you?
2: Yeah. So this is kind of a taking a step back, getting away from maybe the real estate specific, but being, just being an entrepreneur, you know, historically the best companies come out of recessions when you look at venture or tech or operating companies. And so as a sponsor, GP entrepreneur. I would take this opportunity to go try some things on you know you've got some time and you've got some flexibility i would go out there and try some different things take some risks see what works see what doesn't um there'll be some pain but you know i think for most of us the last three to five years were you know really good times this is just how real estate works it is you know to be cliche it's a secular this is where we are in the cycle and you've got to be comfortable with not just trying to push deals because you can push deals it's okay to try some different things and so I would you know, applaud you, go out there, give it a whirl see what happens um, but business models are going to have to change interest rates are real and they do affect the, the business from an operating company standpoint and you can't just
0: put your head in the sand and wait for it to change, it's going to be here for a while. Yeah, I think I think I you're so right on the model side. I mean, because I'm looking at what we were doing three, four years ago compared to what we've been trying to do for the past 12 months, and it was the same thing with completely different results, right? Which to me means, like, I don't think that we're broken. I think the model's broken. And you can't raise with a 6 to 8% prep return on uh, deals that are at lower cap rates than you've ever seen with interest rates the highest we've seen and make any money and justify it I, you know there's
2: about a 20% annual annual turnover within the S&P like your company's yeah. no different it's it's not to say that you can't endure and do well but like that's just kind of the reality of business in America
0: yeah
1: yeah I want to I want to mention one thing here that not to throw California credit on uh, policy yeah, did you guys see this thing they have where you can basically convert any lot to two lots? Mm-hmm. So basically, like yeah, if you've I've got a single-family home lot in California, yeah, you can just add another unit. You can build another unit in your like the back of your garage or something. So, I think there's something in there if you can take a single-family home lot that's big. Or Brian, like you were saying, like defunct. You're like, ah, I got this big house. Or they, can you convert it into two lots? Are they doing that to try to impact the housing crisis? Yeah. They're trying to like, how can we get more housing? I think it's a, I think it's a state law that bypasses all local ordinances. So like oh, at gosh. a state level. You can take a single family lot, turn it into two lots or a two unit dwelling. And like the state is okayed it. Cause I mean, they've got, they got 55 million people there. They, they got a housing, they got a definite housing shortage and affordability issue. Yeah. throughout that whole state. So that was one thing they did that it makes sense. I mean, like if there's a way to buy some single-family homes and convert them to two-unit places and, do, I mean, there could be something there if that kind of trickles through to the rest of our areas.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a brilliant policy change because if you look at our zonings, I mean, Nashville's the same way, right? It has always promoted single-family homes or 250-unit apartment complexes. You have, I mean, that's why everybody has been talking about the missing middle for years. It's really tough to, you can't get duplexes approved in Nashville. You can't get triplexes, quadplexes. That's why a lot of them have not been built in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And you can't get these, you know, 16 unit apartment complexes to work, right? Your boy,
2: your boy, Freddie will change all that for you, Tyler.
0: (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be great. I mean, I you know we're we're doing a documentary right now on the affordable housing crisis, and that's what the Civic Design Center talked about the most was the missing middle. Um, so maybe there's there's something to focus on there. Yeah. And that, funny enough, the place where we got this house, it's in a neighborhood with an overlay, Dave, uh, where any house in this overlay can have an accessory dwelling unit, and they passed oh, that go. a few years ago, and it has completely changed that neighborhood. Because everybody's gone over there and started buying that, because they go, "Oh, well, I can build an apartment on this on this lot and rent it out and help cover my mortgage."
1: Huh. I mean, if you so. can do that, that sounds that sounds great.
0: Yeah, why not? So it'll be fun. Well, I'll keep you guys posted on that venture. We'll see if it's worth doing a second time. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting. Well, guys, thanks for joining us uh, this week to to dive into. What uh, what types of commercial real estate should we be buying today? It sounds like office is a no, multifamily is a no, hospitality. No, kind of, kind of slight maybe. Retail is a yes, industrial is a yes, and single-family home is uh, – we'll wait to see what Tyler has to say about his first deal. <laughs> but um, good conversation. Appreciate you guys being here. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Until then, I appreciate you all for tuning in. We'll see you next time.